<laughs> Get some applause for doing the announcements. I mean, it is an easy crowd, I'll tell you. Uh, hey, check out that 50s dance thing. We, we did a 70s dance uh, in the spring, and uh, this may be a pattern that we're going to do. We have a 50s dance in the fall, but they are a lot of fun. They are just a lot of fun, and it's a good time to uh, meet people and uh, dance with people and get acquainted and just cut loose and show the rock in Hollywoods what church is all about. Um, besides, you'll never know how good a dancer I am unless you come, so... Uh, be sure to get out there. All right. Okay. Good. And I'm supposed to greet all the people in the overflow room. Hello, overflow room people. Yes, we love you. We really do. Um, we had like 150 people there last week. And so I want to welcome you. They can see me up close, uh, which is to their disadvantage. So after the last service, I had a scum building up, a preacher's scum, they call it. And it's building up there. And they could see it. Most people here couldn't, but... So put up with me. But, you know, it feels like talking to a TV camera. Friends in the TV audience today, give your love offering by mail. Okay. Help me, Lord. Here's the deal. Last week, uh, I didn't preach. I had a sermon all set. Um, I didn't preach. I just felt the Lord going in a different direction. And what I sort of did was just sort of popped. Um, those of you who were here last week, I, I just uh, felt like um, God had put something else in my heart that I uh, hadn't intended on talking about and it had to do with love. And what I really just did last week was, I think, shared some of Christ's heart for the body that we are to, above all else, before anything else, at the end of everything else, be a body of people who love. Love is what it's all about. Love is the beginning, the middle, and the end of everything that has to do with Christianity. The fact that a lot of us hear that is sort of a trite, trivial truism. You think I practice these things, but I don't. They sort of come out. Trite, trivial truism. Um, it just says something about how screwed up our culture is about love, or maybe how weird our Christianity is about love. But the bottom line, and this is just sort of what we gushered forth last week, is that the, Lord, the Lord's passion is that we would learn what it is to love one another. To love God, to love one another, and then to love the world. That's, that's the order of everything. And it just was... God was just moving uh, over the whole thing. On Monday, I announced to, uh, we have a staff meeting, and I announced to the staff that I was planning on getting back into Hebrews. I really am. Um, I've been moving towards that since the end of May. And, um, but Jan, who is our team manager and probably knows more about us than we know ourselves, she said, Greg, you're not going to be going back into Hebrews. I said, oh, yes, Miss Prophet, what will I be talking on? And she said, I don't really know, but I think it will have something to do with love. Now, I don't know whether she planted a power of suggestion seed there or whatever. But come Thursday, I just felt no energy going to the Hebrews thing and I felt the Lord saying, no, you've got to talk about the love thing again. And so this morning we're going to talk about the love thing again. And what I want to do this morning here is, last week sort of I gushered forth and threw out this thing about love, but there's a lot of unclarity about it, a lot of confusion about it, and I want to here just do kind of a teaching on love. And I'm not going to take one verse of the Bible. I'm going to hit on different themes of the Bible as we just sort of lay out here uh, what, what love is all about. Let me pray for a moment. Father, let your spirit come down here. God, and I pray that you'd use this as a time to teach us what love is all about. Teach us your heart. Help us to get clear, Lord God, on our life and, um, and, and just what, 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 how we're supposed to organize our life in terms of love and in terms of our relationships. Use the Lord as the catalyst to build your body here this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Here's where I'm coming from in this whole thing. It's, um, I've shared uh, before that for the last several months, I've just been going through this. Uh, it feels like a funk, but I think it's a really good time. But it's a time of real introspection where I've just been sort of asking, maybe it's a midlife crisis or something, but asking what's real. What, what is real about me? What is really real about me? Take away all the external trappings and what is there that's real about me? And what's real about my relationships? And what's real about my marriage? And what's real about my parenting? And I think it's good to go through periods where you just ruthlessly ask those kind of questions and they're tough. Really tough questions to ask, but sometimes you just got to ask them. And the question about what is real reduces down to the question about what is loving. To ask the question, what is real about me, is to ask the question, what is loving about me, because when all is said and done and the curtain of time ends, the only thing about me that will last forever is love. How I have loved, how I have received God's love, what have I done with love? And so I'm asking the question, what is about me is loving. And last week, I just sort of gushered off this, that whole thing. I, the, the, the passion of that. But now I want to ask this question, and, and, and is this, what is love? What is love? I'm not sure I know, and I've spent the week just thinking about that. I've been thinking about it for a while, but this last week, intently. What is love? I think there's a real, a good deal of confusion about that. One of the reasons why there's a lot of confusion about that is that we've got one word for love. And we use it in a gazillion different ways. I love my dog. I love my little dog. Cute little thing. Except when it gives those little poopoos on the rug and then I want to kill my little dog. But normally I love my little dog. But I also love my wife. But I don't love my wife as a dog. That's from, but I use the same word. You see, I love you. Yeah, we also love the dog. See, no, 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 no. See, when you, use the, when you overuse a word, and if there is any word that is overused in our culture, it's love, you water down the meaning of it. We say, I love my car, I love my shirt, I love my job, you know. But the word love means different things in those different contexts. What is love? If you ever ask the question, when, how much do you love, sometimes you, you, get this kind of, you do an in- inventory, and I'm not sure what you're looking for, but sometimes you ever just feel numb, like you don't feel anything. I, I, you just examine, who do I love? What do I love? And there's no feeling you can attach to it. Some days are like that. Some seasons of life are like that. But then you begin to feel like you're some kind of psychopath because there's no love there. If you define love as some kind of internal feeling you're looking for, you're going to feel like that. We need to get clear on what love is. I did a number of things this week in reading for this, and probably the, the most influential book I found was this book, someone gave it to me in the congregation here after last week's sermon. It's, it's by C.S. Lewis called The Four Loves. It's a very, very good book, and a lot of what I'm going to be telling you comes out of that book. In the ancient world, and especially in the ancient Greco-Roman world, they had four different words for love. And there's four different kinds of love they recognized. And knowing these gave gave me a lot of clarity about love. Some of this is old stuff for you. For some of you, it's going to be very new. But hang on to it. First of all, there's eros. The word is eros. And it means, um, the ancient Greeks gave it the definition of a passion that overwhelms. A passion that overwhelms. We get the word erotic from the Greek word eros. Erotic, of course, means what is sensual or what is sexy. That's part of eros. It's one kind of love. But the word eros is, is, goes beyond that. 
Eros is that romantic kind of feeling you have towards another person. Eros is that feeling you get when you, what we call falling in love. You fall into it. It can be very overwhelming. It grabs you. It forms your mind. It makes your heart beat faster. When you take off your shoes, you put them away in the refrigerator. It whips you to pieces. It's, 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 this, it's this incredible kind of a thing. Uh, it, it, you, know, you sing about it. There are birds in the trees. But you never heard them singing. No, until there was you. And, and the greens are a little greener. If you wake up to the world, the greens are greener and, and the reds are redder and, and, and good smells are better and, and, and it's just like you come alive. You know the feeling. It's rapturous. It's ecstatic. It's wonderful. It's there. Oh, forever and ever and ever. That's eros. And it's good and wonderful in its place. It's one kind of love. It also is the most fickle of all the kinds of love. And we'll say more about that a little bit later on. But, but, but it's, 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 it's one form of love. Eros. It is most essentially a God-given drive that a person has to unite with another person. And from a Christian perspective, we understand that Eros, the full expression of Eros and sexual union, is for marriage, the marriage context alone. And in doing that, we're actually modeling something about the Godhead. It's a beautiful thing. You drive towards union with another person. That's Eros. That's one kind of love. There's a second word for love, a second kind of love that they knew about, and it's philia. Philia. And this is brotherly love or sisterly love. It's just, it's friendship love. It's very different than eros love. In eros, you're moving towards one another. The other person is the object of your quest, okay, to unite. In philia, you don't move towards one another, you move alongside of each other. Okay, it, eros is love towards the other. Um, philia is love alongside one another. And in the ancient world, they understood this to be at least as important and usually more important than eros. It can be just as intimate, just as binding, just as wonderful, just as fulfilling, but it's not erotic. It's the kind of love that Jesus had for Lazarus when, it, when they came to, to Jesus and they said, Jesus, the one that you love is, uh, is dying. And they use the word philia there. Now, Jesus loves everyone, but he had a special kinship with Lazarus. Okay, so it was a philia kind of love. This is the kind of love. See, eros is, is the kind of love you find in the Song of Solomon. My beloved, you ravish my heart. I turn away from me. I can't, you know, all that gushy stuff. Philia is, is, is walking alongside one another. It's the kind of love that David and Jonathan had. 1 Samuel chapter 18. It said they bound themselves together in love. A strong love. Okay, and it's profound and it's great. In the ancient world, they knew that this was a vital part of life, to have philia. There are some friends where you have intimate philia, and usually they thought you could have two or three, at the most four, very, very intimate friends who really touch your soul. And then there's comrades that you have, things you share in common, who are close friends, maybe up to 12 to 15, of very close friends who are in on your life. And then you have friends who are just sort of acquaintances that are there. But this... Philia, letting people in on your life, is a crucial part of life. It's the second kind of love. Third kind of love is called storge. Storge, and this is just the general word for affection. Uh, this is the word that, that you use for everything that's not covered by philia or eros. Um, you love your, your children, but you're not really friends with your kids, nor are you erotic with your kids. You're just affectionate towards your kids. That's storge. But you also have storge towards your dog and storge towards your car. You can have storge towards something about another person. I love your smile. I love, yeah, I, I love just the way you do that. But you're not saying I want to be your best friend and you're certainly not saying I'm getting erotic. You're saying I just love that about you. But you see, look at We use the same word for all of them. 
So we got mixed messages going on all over the place. And I don't know what to do with that. We should create some different words or something. But, but you got mixed messages. I, I love your smile. It's all of a sudden, whoa, are you, are you coming out of me? You know, it's so clear. It's so important to get this, this straightened out. Husbands, maybe wives have this too, but, but I'm, a, I'm a guy. Okay, surprise. And so I talk from a guy's perspective. But husbands, do you ever have this where your wife says, you know, why do you love me? Why do you love me? Now, that can be a catch-22. <laughs> you got the wheel starts spinning. Because, here's the deal. If you say, well, okay, I love you for, you know, these eight reasons. You know, you've got beautiful hair. You're great with the kids. Uh, you make great lasagna. You know, you go through there. Then it sounds like your love is conditional. Like, oh, so if I stopped making good lasagna, you wouldn't love me. It's like, no, 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 no. But if you say, well, there's no reason why I love you, you're a dead man. So what do you do there? Well, you see, if we had these different words, she would say, what do you storge about me? And that, oh, well, I storge your hair, I storge your lasagna, I storge your, your smile, I storge so many things about you. But my eros for you, or my just general deep love for you, isn't based on any of those. See how convenient this is? So guys, next time they ask, bring up that storge word. Remember, remember it. <laughs> storge. You calling me a storge? No. Okay. Then there's a fourth word for love, and this is agape. Agape love. This is God's love. It is distinctly Christian love. It has nothing to do with feelings. It has nothing to do with, with, with anything other than a, a commitment that you make. It is this. The unconditional affirmation of another person's worth to the point of denying yourself. It is self-sacrificial love. It is the love that is reflected in John 3.16 when the Bible says, For God so loved the world. Agape. He gave His only begotten Son. Okay? It's self-sacrificial love. He didn't get an erotic buzz off of it or, or feel goosey friendship or anything. He just gave. It is the most profound kind of love there is. It's the kind of love that Jesus... It's the word that's used when Jesus says, Love your enemies. Luke chapter 6. Love your enemies. Now He's not saying... This is very important. He's not saying feel warm fuzzies about your enemies. He's certainly not saying get intimate with your enemies. He's saying take a particular stance towards your enemies. Don't storge your enemies. You don't storge your enemies. There's probably nothing about them. Let's say hypothetically you have a neighbor that just drives you nuts. Hypothetically. You don't storge anything about them. Maybe everything about them just drives you nuts. And you certainly don't have a philia. You don't want to walk alongside of them. There's no philia there. And there's certainly no eros there. What is there? A commitment to affirm their worth as God-given creatures to the point of sacrificing for them, okay? Which, it has this nice release. You don't need to feel guilty of the fact that your feelings are kind of hostile. You can have agape and still wrestle with hostile feelings, okay? It's not about how you feel. Four very different kinds of love. The most profound is agape. 1 Corinthians 13 is about agape, alright? That's the love that's being talked about there. Agape, from a Christian perspective, is to undergird all the other kinds of love. When there is not agape, all the other kinds of loves go in a non-Christian direction. Where there is agape, all the other kinds of love go in a Christian direction. You take agape out of eros, and what you get is pornography. Take agape out of storge, and what you get is infatuation. Take agape out of philia, and what you get is manipulation. There's no self-sacrificial stuff going on with a friendship, and you end up using people as friends. You see? Agape needs to surround and undergird all of them. Now, that's, that's the background information. Let me apply this to our culture. And I think you'll see some things uh, getting clear here. 
Our culture is royally, royally screwed up on the issue of love. So it's not at all surprising that the church is royally screwed up on the issue of love. Here's the situation in a nutshell, and I'm not just the one saying this. There's a lot of commentators who have noted this. C.S. Lewis is profound on this issue. First of all, our culture, and to a large degree the church, has lost uh, the meaning of agape. We are largely a self-centered, narcissistic, self-absorbed, selfish culture. We think of love in terms of what I can get from you. What have you done for me lately? Dun, 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 dun. Ooh, yeah. Okay? It's like, mm. you know, yeah, you say you love me, but what have you done for me lately? That's the idea. Okay? It's very self-absorbed. We've lost agape. We've also lost philia. Of course, people still have friendships, but we've lost it in this century. We've lost the idea of bonding friendships as crucial to life. People to walk alongside of you through life, through different issues and whatnot. In the ancient world, this, they were very out loud about this. Uh, they were very intentional about this. Most of our friendships are, 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 happen accidentally. The person happens to live next door to you or whatever. But see, it's, it's, it's more unlikely than not that that person will not be a good philia with you, a good friend with you, because that has to do with a lot of commonalities, a lot of chemistry, a lot of personality, sameness and whatnot. Most of our friendships are acquaintances. We're not intentional about that. We've lost agape and we've lost philia. A third thing now. We've divinized eros. We've taken the erotic, the sensual, the romantic, and we have put it up on a pedestal. We are, to the best of my knowledge, the only culture that has ever done this, at least to this extent. There have been cultures that worship sex, but, but they, didn't, they understood that it, was not the, it wasn't the primary definition of love. We have romanticized love in a crazy way where we've made it almost a god. And the primary definition that people in our culture work with when they think about love is this romance and really sexuality. Listen to the music of the day. When they use the word love, what are they mainly referring to? It has to do with, 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 with sensuality and, and, and things of that sort. When you put these three things together, loss of agape, loss of philia, the divinization of eros, you, you get some very, very weird results. Let me just give you a couple of them. Number one, you get guys who don't know how to bond with each other. And maybe that's true of women, but I'm a guy and I can only speak from a guy's perspective. I read a study this week that showed that over 80% of all men define intimacy in sensual, romantic terms, but mainly sensual, okay? And all the women are shocked about that, I'm sure. Sex, okay? That's what intimacy is. Not surprisingly, not surprisingly, only, or actually less than 15% of all men have a close male friend that they would say that they were in love with, or, or not in love with. See, that sounds, we need another word. But that, that they're really close to. Why? Well, if you're a man, and you're not gay, and your main definition of love is eros, then when, it, when a guy comes along and you start to have bonding feelings towards it, it's like, walk away. <laughs> run away, run away! And somebody comes up, I love your brother. It's like, man, you know, let's talk football. Let's, let's, uh, <laughs> great Bears game there, right? You know, I, I told this to you last week that I've always had this kind of buzzer. It's like, I just, I just get weird. Even now, this last week, I had a good conversation with a good friend of mine, Paul Eddy. And we're talking about what philia is and what friendship is and what covenant, covenanting is. And even as we're talking, I'm just, I, I just had to be out loud about it. I know what's going on because I've been doing the research this week. 
but it still happens. It's like, I feel like some kind of ninth grade girl worrying about friendship. And I say that because I've got ninth grade girls who worry about friendship. And I sound just like them. What is a friend? What is a best friend? It's like, no, we should be beyond this. This shouldn't be an issue for us. It's like, yeah, will you go out with me? I just... <laughs> but see, here's the thing. You don't know how to bond because we don't have a category for, for, for philia. We only know how to do acquaintances, so we keep it all surfacey. On top of that, if you're a Christian guy, you also, because eros permeates the atmosphere, you've got appropriate guards up about intimacy in an erotic way with women. So you've got guards up with guys, you've got guards up with women. You know what? You're a lonely person. You're a very lonely person. Because we don't, we've lost this idea of genuine love letting people on the inside in a non-erotic kind of a way. A second thing that happened, oh, there's another side of this. Uh, one study I read, this sounds just right too, one study I read said this, there's been a, a significant increase in the rate of homosexuality among juveniles, especially boys. And this author suggested this, that the reason for that is that at about the age of 11 or 12, you've got things going on inside the person, some of it is the development of sexuality, but they're also starting to, to develop friendships. Sometimes boys, and, and this is true of girls too, but I don't know, I'm not sure the issues are the same. But they, they develop a real strong affection, a storge and a philia towards another boy. And that, in the ancient world, it's like, that's good, that's necessary, you've got to have that. Could be lifelong friends. But if you're in a culture that doesn't legitimize that, the only thing that's legitimate is eros, you come to translate that in erotic terms. Many times you have this, this, this love for another boy before you have any kind of affection towards a girl. So now... You have a culture that says, you know what, you are gay. And maybe you're confused about it. Sometimes the sexuality is kicking in and the wires get crossed. You go to a counselor and they say, yep, you're gay. You know, this is the way to go. I've known people that have gone down that course for a number of years thinking that they were gay. And they weren't. They, they, they thinking that that was just their general orientation. But in this culture, where eros defines what love is, things get really, really mixed up. The bottom line of all of this is, is, is this. In the church, we need to really grab hold of the idea that there is a love, a strong love, a powerful love that can unite people together that is not erotic. And we need to, to recapture that. We need to, to uh, teach it to our kids to ward off the very unhealthy divinization of eros that we have in our culture. It just turns light on. Things make sense when you begin to see what's going on. A second thing that goes on in our culture, very important, is that when eros is the main definition of love, and agape has been, has been minimized, and philia has been minimized, marriages become too dependent on eros. Too dependent on eros. Eros is this great, wonderful feeling, as I said, but eros is a very, very fickle thing. And so you have people saying this, I don't think I love you anymore. I've fallen out of love with you. I've met somebody who is my one and only. You see, the thing about eros, C.S. Lewis is good on this, is eros is amoral. It's God-given, it can be great, but in and of itself it's amoral. It does not instinctively obey God and it's very deceptive. When eros strikes you, it seems like this is the first and only time this has ever happened. It's very deceptive. This is your one life partner. So you get eros feelings towards another person, you lose the eros feelings towards your spouse, and bam, you get a divorce. Here's the thing. You can't fall out of agape. You choose agape, or you choose to get rid of agape, but you don't fall out of agape, and you don't fall out of philia. But eros zings in and zings out, turn the fire up, turn the fire down, 
And if a marriage is based on eros, then the person very sincerely thinks they've fallen out of love. These are not bad people. They just really think that the love is gone and now they just got to leave. It's dead. Look at I'm going to, a little advertisement here. All to the married people. God gave Eros and it's great. Alright? Pursue Eros. Married people. You know, studies have shown that the TVs and the radios lie because Eros in marriage, sexuality in marriage, is much better than, sexu- than sexuality outside of marriage. They have more fun. Sex is intended for marriage and it's great, it's wonderful, it's dynamic. Yahoo! When it's inside of the context of marriage. Alright? That's what it's there for. It's great. So, pursue Eros. Don't, don't settle for a deadpan thing. Romance. Husbands, pursue your wives. Wives, attack your husbands. Go out to a motel once in a while. You know, that's what it's there for. It's great. Have fun with it. Turn up the flames. If you do that in your marriage, you've just cut out a lot of temptation outside of the marriage. Okay? That's, it's supposed to be there. It's an atomic bomb. Pursue it. Okay, it's great. It's wonderful. That's the advertisement. In marriage. Having said all that, one of the authors I read this week says this, love Eros, but never trust it. <laughs> because the feelings will come and go. The buzz is there. Oh! And the buzz is gone. Oh! So what? That's life. It's, you know, that's how these things go. Mar- the foundation of marriage should not be Eros. It should be, first of all, agape. You make a commitment to live out the life of Christ towards one another. Husbands and wives, Paul says in Ephesians 5, submit yourself to one another. Sacrifice yourself to one another. Come underneath one another. You make that commitment. That's the foundation for it. Having done that, a second thing. You now have something in common to walk alongside each other with. It may be that you have very else in common, but that's fine. You have this in common. You want to pursue one another. That's a lot in common. You want to live a life together. That's a lot in common. Maybe you want to have kids together. That's a lot in common. So now you become best friends because you're walking together in life's journey, if for no other reason than to stay married and to honor God in your marriage. You've got a lot in common. If you've got agape and you've got philia, now you're in a good place to, as the wind blows, experience eros. And it is great. But you don't base on it. You don't fall out of love when, when the eros is not there, okay? The foundation for the whole thing is agape and philia. Eros is the nice spice that God gave us to enjoy one another. Amen. Okay, the second thing that happens is this. In a culture that's lost agape and in a culture that's lost philia but divinized eros, you get this. The marriage that, that has to already bear too much weight because of eros also has to bear too much weight because of philia. Now, hear me on this. Because there's not outside friendships, or our culture doesn't, there's only acquaintances, because there's not deep friendships and bonds outside of the marriage, all the friendship needs are, are, have to be met in the marriage. And our culture romances this. The lover is your best friend, and the only one you need, and da-da-da-da-da-da. People believe that. You get married. Six months into the marriage, you know what you discover? This person is really different from you. Really different from you. Philia is about walking alongside each other. You have common interests. You like the same topics. You talk about them the same. You know, da-da-da-da. That's philia. All of a sudden, this person doesn't feel much like a philia to you. Okay? Now, the reason is because eros has, for the first time, perhaps, started to die down. And eros made you blind to that. Okay? Now, it's time to get real. (laughs) Honeymoon's over. Look it. This person thinks different. They act different. They have different interests. All right? And in this culture, that seems catastrophic. You're supposed to be my one and only friend, and all my needs are supposed to be met in you. Wrong! So you think, now we have irreconcilable differences, and people get divorced. Look at 
in God's plan, it never was the case. It's very, very, very rare. I almost want to say never is it the case that the person that you have eros towards and agape towards is going to meet all your philia needs. Yeah, it feels like I'm speaking in tongues up here all of a sudden. It's like, philia, my eros, oh. And then, but if you think they're supposed to meet those needs, all of a sudden you get scared because you're so different. You get scared because you're so different. And maybe you get resentful. You know, because this person, and then someone comes along that is a good friend, and now you, now because you think of love in terms of eros, you think, oh, maybe I'm supposed to get erotic with that person. And it gets screwed up and marriages blow apart. Look it. Here's the thing. One, one author said this. What makes eros great is not what makes philia great. In a marriage, you need philia. Because the most important thing about life, living together and walking together and honoring God in your relationship, you have in common. And you don't have that in common with anybody else. Having said that, the difference between you two for Eros is a wonderful challenge. Eros wants to unite you together, wants to bring you close together. And the gulf between you only can make it more intense. Most people, quote-unquote, fall in love with people that are very different from themselves. And there's a reason for that. The mystery of them is part of what makes Eros wonderful. Okay? So you're not going to have a person, probably, who is in all respects can just relate to how you think and, and whatever. That's not a problem. In the ancient world, that never was expected so long as you understand the importance of friendships around the marriage. And this is my point. The nuclear family is not God's design. The idea of little old me and little old you and our two little old kids living together and we don't need anything else, that is not God's design. God's design is the church. And the church is woven together by, by committed agape relationships. And every one of those relationships enforces the other relationship. Having friendships outside of the marriage that are philia, not eros, but philia, enhances the marriage. Dennis uh, Meckelbaum, in his book, The Myth of Romance, makes a big point out of, uh, of this. You need, your spouse maybe doesn't relate to how you think, and you need friends who do relate to how you think. That shouldn't be a threat to the marriage. That's a wonderful thing for the marriage, because it, now it takes the pressure off of the marriage to be everything. You see what I'm saying? In the body of Christ, we need friends. People who walk with us. People who are on the inside of our life. People who struggle with us. We need people that we genuinely love. Eros is just for, for those who are called to marriage. Eros is for the marriage. Not everyone is called for that. And you've got to be legitimate with that too. Okay with that. But we all need a network of friends. When the marriage is struggling, you've got people there who will hold you up. When you're sick, there you have people there who will pray for you and visit you in the hospital. When you're in financial trouble, you have people who will help you out. We do agape towards one another. We walk alongside one another. We have common goals, common bonds, a common Lord. That's got to happen. If that were true, if that were in place in the body of Christ, you know what? We would see a lot fewer marriages blowing up. Because this is the way God intended the whole thing to be, to, to be woven together. Philia, we need to recapture that. These covenant groups that we're starting are just one way that we have to begin to get people acquainted, first of all, maybe becoming close friends, Maybe once or twice becoming very intimate, lifelong friends. You can't program that. you just got to trust God to let it happen. The 50s dance is another way. What I know for sure is this. People are lonely, and God gave us us for each other. We've got to begin to live that out. We've got to begin to live that out. That's community. Let me close by saying one other thing. How does this relate to our relationship with God? It relates in a profound way. There's two things I want to say about it. First of all, there is a part of each one of us, a deep part, in fact, the deepest part of each one of us, that no human being can ever address. There's a loneliness inside of you 
that I don't care who your spouse is and I don't care who your friends are, it will not go away because it is there for Jesus Christ to come in and meet it. God made us the vacuum inside of us. We need love. I'm just realizing how much I need love, how much I need people, how much I need my wife, how much I need friends. And, 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 and that's been a little bit weird for me to, to begin to acknowledge. But having said all that, what we need even more than that, we need that. That's not negotiable. But what we need even more than that is Jesus Christ in our life as a friend, as a lover, as an agape savior. And there's a part of you that will never be satisfied until you have that. Even when you have it, it will go in and out because life changes a lot. But you need that. If you don't recognize this, get this. If you don't understand that and don't have Jesus Christ to meet it, here's what often happens. You begin to blame your friends or you begin to blame your spouse for the fact that your needs aren't getting met. And sometimes it happens that people abandon their husband or abandon their wife to in quest of that wonderful, wonderful person who's going to hit that innermost need in your life. And Eros will tell you that they will. But it's a lie. It's a lie. Jesus Christ alone can meet that. Know that. Don't expect total fulfillment from our earthly relationships. They are necessary. But the foundation for the whole thing is receiving God's agape love into our life. A second thing is this. We need to understand, as the worship team comes forward, we're going to go back into worship now. Um, but as the worship team comes forward, know this. That in our relationship with Jesus Christ, all the different kind of loves are embodied. All right? The Lord loves us with storge, affection. And the Bible talks about a father-son, father-daughter relationship. Uh, a parent-child relationship. That's storge. The Lord has a tender affection towards us. You know what? The Lord not only loves you, He likes you. Think about that. He made you unique. He likes your uniqueness. Now, sometimes what you do with that, He doesn't like. But you, in your uniqueness, He not only loves you, He likes you. Okay? Storge. There's also a dimension of uh, philia in our relationship with God. Jesus Christ says that you are my friends. I want to walk alongside of you. I want to walk alongside of you. I want to go through life together with you. That's part of our relationship with, with, with Jesus Christ. He wants to be in our life and us in His life. Okay? Friendship. There's also an eros dimension to our relationship with God. Look at the song, song of Songs. Song of Solomon. The Lord loves us with a passion that sexual union only approximates. He wants... He comes towards us. He wants to be eye to eye. Not only... Facing each other, going alongside of each other, but he wants to be eye to eye, intimate with us, in an eros kind of a way, to be embracing, to have that.